Hello, indeed, we do need a revolution, and look at this. We have got Bernadette Pager and Bob Reynolds actually in studio. If anybody is watching this live, this is very exciting. Uh, you're listening to an Inform Life Radio on 1150 AM KKNW, CHD TV, Facebook, and even streaming now to Twitter. We are so pleased to be here. We're getting the word out, and Bob, you know this is what it's all about, getting the word out. I got to say from the very beginning here that uh, the views expressed, like you heard just before the show, are not necessarily those of KKNW or Children's Health Defense. But what we love here is freedom of speech. We've got this amazing platform and we're continuing to get the word out. And, you know, I tell you, Bob, I keep saying this. I'm almost 60 years old and I've never really understood the value of this nation and free speech. Until recently. So i just so grateful for this, and we got to keep it going. And with that, you know what? You know how you can keep free speech going, everybody listening to this? I want you to fill out a survey. KKNW, this wonderful AM radio station that we are on, are, is doing their annual survey. So it's a great uh, time to let this station know about your favorite shows. And that's an informed life radio. That is your favorite show, right? About your likes and your dislikes and what you want to hear on the station. If you want to hear more shows like ours, let them know. And there's some other really great programming on on this. Um, I got my start here with Lift Your Spirits uh, Radio, uh, a great show with Dina Marie. Um, So you can help shape the station's future by letting them know how you feel about it. How do you do it? Well, you go to uh, www.1150kknw.com and click on the image of the 2023 listener survey near the top of the page. As a, a, a little incentive, when you fill out the survey, you've got a chance to win a round trip passage for two on the Victoria Clipper to Victoria BC plus $100 in gift certificates to famous Dave's restaurant. So, you know, let them know how much you appreciate the free speech they allow, the great programming. Um, Would really appreciate it if you guys took the time to do that. Again, 1150kknw.com. So here we are. Um, I'm, I'm out here in the great Northwest. My old stomping ground with my people. What? What, Bob? Go ahead. Welcome, welcome back. Oh, thank you. Please stay. Yeah, just here for a week visiting. And, you know, my peeps picked me up from the airport. um, And we went right down to Olympia because there was a medical freedom rally going on. So, you know, get off the plane and, and head there, do a little rallying, meet some amazing people. And I know a lot of people in this state, Bob, are somewhat discouraged you know, by by what's going on, the laws that are being passed, the laws that are being proposed, right? But luckily, some of them have stalled. And just so much that's going on. But I, I got to let you know, if you get down there um, and you you begin to really talk to the people and have that dialogue, it's all about dialogue. You find common ground. I, you know, walking around um, the Capitol, talking to people. I would have people over here. There would be the secretaries. There would be the security guards, the legislative assistants, um, and some of the legislators. They're like, I'm interested in that, what you're talking about, medical freedom, ivermectin for treating COVID and COVID vaccine injury, all of this stuff. Um, 
you know, uh, I think we have to focus on that, on making relationships and, um, excuse me, <clears throat> and communicating. I'm going to let you talk for a second here, Bob. My voice is going. Right. And so we have experience there in Olympia walking around the Capitol, walking into the halls. Uh, they do have some security measures set up before you can meet with the legislators. But we do have friends in the Capitol. We do have friendly legislators who are happy to see us there. And we do make uh, some some momentum. We, we make sure that they're not alone. We do have friendly bills. And so we, we are good uh, to start supporting those all the time. Yeah, exactly. And a lot of the people who work there, um, they like to have conversations and they're very happy that we're, that they're, we're there, that they're, you're there all year round. Um, I'm mostly in Nashville doing the same thing. So, and um, we did learn on Monday that some of the um, legislators have chosen to have an open door policy. So you can go in and then ask the, the people, they'll phone into the office and and if they're free, they will let you in. Right, so, right. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So um, we have got uh, two great hours of programming here. It's all about fact-checking, okay? So, you know, information is power. We all ha- we have to fact-check the fact-checkers, and, and the authority figures are putting themselves out there as authority figures. And one of my favorite fact-checkers in the world is Carl Kanthak. So let's, let's bring our wonderful Carl Kanthak on board. Hey, Carl. <laughs> Good afternoon. Am I coming through? Yes, you are coming oh, through. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, loud. Thank you. You're welcome. And y- you were there in Olympia on Monday, and you gave a great speech to the small crowd uh, uh, gathered, and I was so glad to hear you. And that's, you know, we brought you on again, because once again, you have found in the public health sector information being distributed to the public that contains false, misleading information. So we're going to give you... Uh, the platform here um, and let you just kind of take over your topic. So you're going to be talking about an article published um, in the Spokane Review. Is that correct? Spokesman, yeah. Spokesman, Spokesman Review, Review in Spokane. <clears throat> yeah. And one of the things that you find is there is a, uh, a not just unspoken agreement, but formal agreement between the press and uh, public health structures that they can run whatever they want whenever they need to run it. And one of the uh, excuses that the media will use for not uh, talking about vaccine injury or vaccine failure is the concern that that they will be promoting vaccine hesitancy and that uh, that that's going to result in lower vaccination rates, which will result in higher uh, infection and then uh, therefore uh, you know injury and mortality from the infection. So yeah. they've got uh, that. Yeah, they're they're one-sided in their. Uh, uh, willingness to report these things, but this was just your standard, uh, you know, rates are low. This is going to get everybody unless we vax every single person and we need to get rid of exemptions. Uh, right. And which yeah. was exactly the theme the last time I was here. Exactly. And Carl, <laughs> I, you, you hit on something that's really, really important because I've got to say that most people working in public health, except for, you know, maybe not the Fauci's of this world, they absolutely believe what they're doing. You know, these are good people being led astray. And yeah, and it's been for decades. It has been the policy that we do not criticize publicly vaccine or vaccination programs lest we undermine trust in public health. I think if we could somehow communicate to those working in public health that this approach might have served them in the past. We're not, you know, let's set aside the fact that people were injured and not being helped because of this approach. But right now we see the absolute failure of this approach and how it's completely um, undermining any trust 
absolute wiping out of trust. And the only thing they're going to be able to do to get back trust is to start telling the truth. And to stop this, we can't talk about issues. We can't talk about harm. Correct. Right? Um, And our side is only growing. Nobody, Nobody on our side wakes up one day and says, oh, gosh, I was wrong. I really trust Pfizer, and I really trust the Department of Health and CDC. I was wrong to misjudge. Nobody does that. People only no. come to our side, and their side is shrinking. So so here we go. You- well, yeah, and, you know, before, if you think about the summer 2019, before everything blew up, is that, uh, you know, at that time is, uh, I think, Rasmussen found that the pharmaceutical industry has... I think it was a negative 34 or negative 54 rating, putting it at the lowest of everything. And when you think about it, you know, you never run into anybody who says, hey, I just got a new MD and I feel better than ever. I'm on eight different prescriptions and I'm fan- I feel fantastic. You know, but how many times do you run into someone that says, I just, you know, I met a, my friend referred me to an acupuncturist or a Chinese medicine or a functional medicine or an herbalist or naturopath, and, uh, you know, they've got me off everything, and I feel great. Yeah. And there's, there's no doubt that uh, from a sheer, uh, you know, a mercenary standpoint, then, that alternative health is a, is a, real, uh, a real threat to, the, to their business model when you have healthy people who don't require the, uh, uh, the medications that they sell. And, of course, the, the, the blockbuster ones are the lifestyle medications, those for diabetes, those that treat a condition that is not curable. That's the, uh, you know, a blockbuster drug is one where they're going to generate a billion dollars a year for something that is a recurring purchase, uh, mm-hmm. just like uh, the old one they used to get us when we were kids with our Columbia uh, record subscription. You send in the penny and you get those 16 free <laughs> albums and then your mom has to pay for the other ones that uh, <laughs> keep coming in that you opened up. At least that's the way it worked yeah. at my place. But, but you know, I, I just got to throw in there, type <laughs> 2 diabetes is reversible, the adult onset yes. diabetes. And Dr. Paul Merrick of the FLCCC re- recently reversed his diabetes through diet change and intermittent fasting. So, yes. you know, we're, we're even uh, going into those, uh, those drugs they didn't think we could touch. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, shall, shall I start? Yes, yes. Okay, so let's, uh, oh good, it popped right up. So this is, of course, our title slide today. And uh, I didn't put my disclaimers in, but I'm not a doctor, I'm not a lawyer, uh, so nothing is uh, medical or legal advice, but I am also not stupid, so uh, hopefully that will carry through. <laughs> and keep uh, in mind, Carl, it is uh, also just audio only, so make sure you read okay. the pertinent parts of your slides. Oh, Thank okay, you. very good. Yeah. Uh, yes. So this uh, title slide, Fact Check, Spokane Regional Health District, Health Officer Opinion. This was in the Spokesman Review. And uh, so the title uh, is uh, uh, Measles in 2023 are eliminated but not eradicated. This is by Francisco R. Velasquez. And uh, so the uh, uh, measles was declared eliminated in the United States in 2000 and in the Americas by 2015. But elimination does not mean eradication and outbreaks continue to occur, not only here but globally. Outbreaks can happen anywhere that people are either unvaccinated or under-vaccinated. And then so my commentary on that is that outbreaks also can and do occur in fully vaccinated populations due to vaccine failure. Uh, Number one, primary vaccine failure. That's when the vaccine never provides protection. And uh, for measles specifically, it's 7% on the first MMR that they concede 
Uh, secondary vaccine failure is when the vaccine wears off over time. And immune escape is when the vaccine strain is no longer a good match for the circulating strain. So a reference slide is this is from the CDC. And uh, this is uh, vaccination. Measles can be prevented with the measles-containing vaccine, which is primarily administered as the combination MMR. And uh, one dose of MMR is approximately 93% effective at pre preventing measles. Do two doses are approximately 97%. But then the next line, so, you know, a lot of people think that that, that means that uh, of 100, everybody has 93% protection, but that's not true. 93% of the people have some immune response that the public health considers to be protective and 7% don't respond. And then that's where the next sentence comes in. Almost everyone who does not respond to the measles component of the first dose of MMR at age 12 months or older will respond to the second dose. And it states right there, therefore the second dose of MMR is administered to address primary vaccine failure. And it has the reference there. But then not even everybody that gets that second bang uh, are going to be able to be protected. Then the next, uh, the next reference I have is a differential durability of immune responses to measles and mumps following MMR vaccination. So this is a clear-cut uh, documentation of secondary vaccine failure. And uh, it just goes through and says that they tested uh, people 7 and 17 years after two-dose MMR2. Results indicate that the mumps IG titers exhibited a large and significant decline and similar discrepancy with measles-specific immune responses for both pathogens neutralizing antibody titers were fairly low. And, uh, you know, we can put these slides somewhere for people that are interested in this, but this gets no play whatsoever in public health, except mm -hmm. when they're trying to say that uh, um, when they want to do a mandate because everybody needs to be vaccinated because not everybody who's vaccinated gets immune, which is sort of a reverse kind of a... <laughs> yeah. Kind of a deal. Oh, there he is. There's Javier. I'm so glad. Javier. Good to be back, guys. And again, Carl, I've been following you all week, all the past two weeks with everything you've been doing in Arizona and Washington. Oh, my gosh. Well, good for you, man. <laughs> I'm still waiting on the Arizona to come up, but we, we had a banger down there. Had some. I ended up spending Monday meeting with uh, some politicians, legislators, and local uh, people from the political structure in Tucson. Nice. Uh, they yeah. were they were very very interested in the material. I'll do uh, just a quick intro for anybody if a first time listener. Uh, we just brought on Javier Figueroa, PhD, who's uh, also a co-host of this show, and when he can make it, I'm so glad you were able to pop in. Yay! So um, Carl's given us a presentation here. Uh, he is refuting, disputing um, a article published in a Spokane newspaper um, about measles. Just this February. Yep. Yeah, just recently, and uh, yeah, I'm, it's not even a dispute. I'm just correcting. <laughs> All right, so then uh, the next is genetic characterization of measles viruses. So this is immune escape, the third type of vaccine failure. Wild-type measles viruses have been divided into eight clads containing 24 genotypes based on the nucleotide sentences. So we've got, uh, so there's been 19 genotypes detected since 1990, and uh, uh, all vaccine strains are genotype A, and we're all the way out to H2. So there, you know, there's some debate of, of the, uh, uh, you know, the efficacy of the type A vaccine, uh, the vaccine-containing strain to, to prevent some of these that have an origin in Central Europe. 
and other places like that. So this, this is not something I'm making up. That's the reason I put these slides in. And then this was an interesting uh, reference. Genotyping and public health investigations. Uh, it can be a measles virus genotyping can play an important role in tracking transmission pathways during outbreaks. Genotyping results can help confirm, disprove, or detect connections among cases. But genotyping can also distinguish whether a person has wild-type measles virus infection or a rash caused by a recent measles vaccination. A small percentage, 5%, that's 1 in 20, that's not that small to me, of measles vaccine recipients experience rash and fever 10 to 14 days following vaccination. During outbreaks, measles vaccine is administered to help control the outbreak, and in these situations, vaccine reactions may be mistakenly classified as measles cases. The vaccine strain of measles virus can be distributed. So in the lab, they can tell the difference. But the question is then, if a treating clinical physician who's dealing with active measles cases can't tell the difference between a measles case and a vaccine reaction, that means that either A, the vaccine reaction is as brutal as the infection, or B, the infection is so mild it's indistinguishable from the vaccine reaction. And then this is a, a flow chart. I have a flow chart next that is, uh, you know, showing that if 97% of the population is vaccinated, which it typically is, then, uh, th then we go to, you know, some, depending upon the vaccine component and which vaccine, then 80, 88 to 97% may be protected. But then you have 3 to 12%. This is with the measles and the mumps vaccine. So mumps vaccine, 88% is optimum. That's as high as they claim. And uh, so primary failure rates of 3 to 12% and then immune escape uh, is the mismatch vaccine to the circulating antigen. And then on the, those that are vaccinated and were initially protected, then secondary failure, when it wanes, uh, drops back. So you end up with several of these boxes. The majority of these boxes end up unprotected. And the only person that really has full, durable, robust immunity is someone who has uh, had a natural infection. Mm -hmm. Because of primary and secondary vaccine failure and immune escape, even 100% vaccination cannot result in 100% immunity. Mandatory vaccination is chasing an unobtainable objective. Then the, uh, going back to his, uh, the opinion, recently a confirmed case of measles in adult FIBO was reported in King County. The patient is unvaccinated and has a recent history of international travel. Therefore, the infection was most likely acquired outside of the U.S. This is the second documented case in the U.S. in 2023. So then I, my next is that during the baby boom, the birth rate was 4 million per year and everybody contracted measles at some point in childhood and developed lifelong durable broad immunity. This was before the vaccine and eventual widespread systematic vaccine program. Even today, a pediatric measles case pre-1957 is recognized as proof of immunity. That was the good stuff. And I, I want to add at this point that, and I, I don't have it at my fingertips, but there was a, a study out there projecting that at some point there's going to be more people susceptible to measles um, than were before the vaccine program began because of vaccine failure, because it's a leaky vaccine and because of waning. It used to be um, infants were protected by mothers by passive immunity up to about age one, and then virtually everyone age 15 and over had lifetime immunity, um, and quite a few, you know, even in younger ages, and so it squeezed Correct. the number. But with, with all this waning and the failure 
and the inability to boost, because studies have shown that a third dose does not um, effectively extend any protection, that there's soon going to be more people at dangerous ages susceptible. And I, I would suspect we're about there. We're about 60 years into this um, this vaccine uh, program. Um, not quite, 50-some years, I guess. It was 68, yeah. really, that they began to really roll out. So a couple more years. And as the naturally immune population begins to um, drop off, then we're going to end up with more people susceptible. And that's really where the panic is coming from, from the CDC. Correct. They don't want to tell all these adults. But, Carl, I, I believe you're probably getting to it in your slides. I might be jumping the gun. But when there were those handful of measles cases here um, in 2019, um, they were telling doctors and nurses and hospitals who are vaccinated, pretend as if you're not, basically, because we don't know if you're protected. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, that's one of the references from the uh, National Vaccine Advisory Committee in 2015 during the Disney measles outbreak is that for the, the California Department of Public Health has been telling their, uh, their standard physician guidance is that if they are treating a measles case, regardless of, unless they've had a natural immunity, that, uh, you know, they, unless they are old enough that they had a case or at some point had contracted a case, mm -hmm. that they sh do not consider themselves immune and they have to wear full PPE when treating a uh, confirmed measles case, regardless of the number of in immunizations and or IgG testing. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the, the part about this pool of susceptible people so that we, you know, we had, we'd achieved herd immunity in the, in the 50s, which was when, you know, you had everyone, so a as you said, everybody from probably most everybody by nine or 10 had it. So then, and, and just as far as age cohorts go, uh, each year is about 1.5% of the population if you have an 80 year lifespan. So then, you know, and, and measles would come through every four years, there would be a case and you'd get, you know, you'd get the big cases. And that's why when you look at the charts, and I think I have one even later on here, you see these big waves and then and so they, if you didn't get it this time, you're going to get it the next time it comes through. And uh, so, but with a four-year wave, then you have at the most 6% of the population is susceptible at that time because, the, as you said, the kids had durable immunity passed maternally. So we are in a situation where it's Dr. Poland was the one that had come out with that study that you're referencing, uh, Bernadette, with, where he was saying that yeah. with, the, with the accumulating vaccine failure, both primary and secondary over time, not counting immune escape, we will get to a point where there'll be more people that are susceptible to measles than there were before there was a vaccine. Right. And, 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 I, and I... Well, I was going to say that's Dr. Gregory Poland, and we're not talking yes. about, you know, a wacko doctor. We're talking about the editor of the journal Vaccine, who's, you know, right. he, he, he looks on us. I mean, he's quite brilliant, but he looks on us as, as like yeah. kind of lab rats that, you know... Yeah. <laughs> He, th he believes in personalized vaccines, but they're too expensive. So everybody gets the same dose, even if, oops, it might hurt you. But and, you know, I don't like that anybody has been harmed by any of the COVID shots, but he has severe injury from it. He got severe tinnitus, I believe it was. I did um, hear that. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, I pray that he gets well. Nobody deserves that that horrible no. experience. But um, as far as I know, he's still experiencing some I'm hoping it changes yeah. his outlook on the need to speed up uh, vaccine safety um, issues, uh, addressing them. Absolutely. So then continuing with uh, the doctor, uh, and then for historical context, let's take a look at the 2022 outbreak 
In Ohio, where 85 patients younger than 18 were affected, the Ohio outbreak made up the bulk of the United States' 121 cases reported that year in six jurisdictions. So the Ohio outbreak was an inbreak, which is a term that Bernadette coined, <laughs> occurring in a specific national ethnic group of intentionally unvaccinated people who feel that the risk of the vaccine exceeds the benefits in their individual circumstances. So when I met with you last time, I don't think I had this information yet. So the measles case summary, this is central Ohio outbreak, and you have 80 unvaccinated, four partially vaccinated, uh, and then one of unknown vaccination. So you have 85 cases uh, and then zero deaths. Uh, 36 were hospitalized. There is a national vaccine advisory committee where the, one of the uh, treating physicians says w none of us had seen measles before, and there was a lot of infants, so they were preemptively uh, you know, it wasn't that the kids were so ill that they required hospitalization. They were just not sure what to do with them. Mm. Uh, MMR dose timing is first dose at 12 to 15 months, second dose between the fourth and seventh birthday. So only five of the 85 were clearly old enough to be fully vaccinated with two doses. And then there's the case breakdown. So 65% of the cases are one to five years old. And then uh, five were 16 to 17 years old, uh, six to 17 years old. And, uh, but then when we look at who it is, is that uh, this is from that National Vaccine Advisory Committee meeting, Central Ohio measles outbreak. Columbus has the second largest Somali population in the United States after Minneapolis. The Somali are very reluctant to get the MMR vaccine. The high hospitalization rate is due to the young age of the infected, and then it appears to be prophylactic as no deaths had occurred. You know, and one thing too is I want to make sure nobody's, I'm not, I don't ever minimize the risk of measles to certain populations. I mean, measles was and is a dangerous infection if you have no access to health care and if you have any kind of pre-existing conditions, but it's quite tolerable for people that are uh, have access to health care and are well-fed. Yeah, exactly. I, so I want to bring up, though, real quick, again, we go back to Dr. Gregory Poland, who years ago did a study because he was really curious about um, why adverse effects in some people and not in others and I believe it was he who discovered that the Somalis are genetically susceptible to, I, the, I think it was the mumps portion of the MMR that they were um, overreactive to. And he surmised that they would benefit by only getting a half a dose of MMR instead of a full dose. And they have very high rates in, in Somali where they moved from. There's almost no autism. They didn't have a word for it. But when they moved here... Um, they have very high rates of autism in their community if they've gotten the MMR. Um, they really should be getting, if they're going to choose vaccination as the route to protection rather than natural immunity, they should have personalized dosing um, based on their genetics. And that's not happening. And, and that, to me, is criminal because Gregory Poland discovered this susceptibility. Um, and I don't know why, you know, where the trust could be built. Trust could be built if, if these things were just said. I think most people would still get vaccinated, but they would feel have more faith and trust if they thought, well, if they found out that I was genetically susceptible to harm and I needed a smaller dose and they're going to tell me, right? And, exactly. Yeah. Well, that was part of uh, uh, Bernadette Healy was discussing that. Oh, Bernadine, the, uh, yes. Bernadine, excuse yeah. me, yeah. That was running the uh, NIH? Yes. Or, yeah, yeah who I was just so. saying that, you know, that, that uh, you know, the uh, powers that be were concerned to do any research because if they identify a particularly susceptible group, 
then again, we might be back into the hesitancy again. You know, the, uh, the, all three components were available individually in the United States up until 2000 or so. Yeah. So, I mean, they have to make them individually, you know, make it, they, you, they don't make it as an MMR. It doesn't come out of the vat as an MMR. No. It comes out three different, and they have to put them together. And part of that is that, uh, you know, the, the, what's supposed to be happening is that you're getting a subclinical case so that when you're exposed later on, you don't get a clinical case. But were they paying attention to what happens when you give somebody three subclinical cases concurrently? Was there much research on that? And then what they found was they had to jigger around with the uh, amount of material for the different ones because they interfere with each other. There's viral interference when you mix them together. And then uh, there's, uh, so you have to crank up the mumps in order for, you know, because um, their licensure is based on the blood test of the recipient. So if you're not getting enough and uh, outside of the United States, it's, it's the MR is primarily used. They don't do the MMR as much. And uh, which might be why even in African Afri uh, vaccination programs, they're not seeing that level of, uh, of uh, neurological damage uh, in those that are susceptible. But then, uh, so with the, here's a reference exactly what you're talking about, Bernadette, is that since war broke out in Somalia in the early 1990s, the Somali refugees have gone through the United States. Columbus metropolitan area has the second highest concentrations, 45,000 immigrants. And then the next slide is uh, the Western disease, autism, and Somali parents embodied health movements. And the citation here, there is statistical evidence indicating that Somali refugees and immigrants have high rates of autism spectrum disorder. Somalis in North America call autism the Western disease because there is no word for autism in Somali. Mm -hmm which is exactly what you just were referencing. So this is, uh, and the point being here that this is not like some random people that are recklessly saying, hey, we're not going to get the MMR because we saw Jenny McCarthy one time on Oprah. You know, I mean, these are people that are directly experiencing and witnessing and thinking they're making a calculated uh, uh, health care decision that for them that they're, they would prefer to take the uh, natural infection, just like we saw here in Washington. Mm -hmm. Now, prior to that, the most significant outbreak took place in 2019 and uh, with uh, 1,274 individuals from 31 different states confirmed to be infected. That year, we had two outbreaks in Washington and one isolated case for a total of 87. The Clark County inbreak was in an intentionally unvaccinated national ethnic groups, religious, private school, Sunday school, daycare, and homes. This group travels internationally frequently to measles endemic countries for community visits and mission work. They prefer the more robust and durable immunity that a natural infection provides over discovering their vaccine has failed when exposed in a foreign nation. And this actually references the informed choice site is the link for that. And uh, then I have a copy of a letter the pastor of the community was so upset with the fear-mongering that he wrote a to whom it may concern letter. I am the senior pastor of, and we have anonymized that. We're an active congregation. We actively meet and also have children's Sunday school. We had a child who contracted measles visiting from abroad brought to our school. Several large families were affected. Families range anywhere from two to 12 children each. All children involved were quarantined and the congregation shut down for three weeks in order to eradicate the outbreak amidst our congregation. The CDC was involved and we followed all the recommendations. 
At this point, the virus is contained and everyone is fully recovered and no more measles cases occurred within it. No babies contracted the virus despite their siblings being ill. Please be assured. So he's trying to get people to calm down. And what was public health's reaction was to uh, continue to pour gasoline and terrify the population. One of the tricks is to have the cumulative count, case count. And at any given time, I, I went through and looked at this at one. I don't think more than eight people at any given time were actually sick. And, you know, if you were to listen to the public health, then you're, you, once you get measles, you always have measles. And so starting in January, then we had 22, 24, and there's this continuing caseload. Yeah. And then uh, uh, households and churches were the predominant settings for transmission. So this, this was basically over by the time it was publicized, because at that point, everyone that had uh, uh, contracted a case after that was already under observation because they were at home with their families. Uh, in April, Bernadette Pager, co-president of Informed Choice Washington, attempted to learn how many cases of measles were caught by strangers in public spaces outside the affected community, in, if any. Her direct questions to a state epidemiologist were not answered and led to the necessity of doing a public records request, which I don't think they ever did respond to. Uh, and then on April... No, but... Oh, you, that, no, you go ahead. You've got it here. Okay. <laughs> on April 25th, in a face-to-face meeting, Ms. Pager repeatedly asked, Secretary Wiesman, how many cases were caught outside the isolated community? And he repeatedly refused to answer, saying only, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter Washington state citizens lost their right to a personal philosophical exemption to Merck's on trial for fraud MMR vaccine. That has to do with the mumps component, and they're spiking, uh, they're spiking the tests with rabbit antibody blood. Uh, because legislators were made to fear measles was spreading like wildfire in Clark County when the entire time non-vaccinated families in a small community were respectfully self-isolating and under quarantine. This intentional deception to achieve the desired goal of passing legislation is unacceptable. That's what happened with, we had Washington, wheat measles in Washington in 2019. It was so, un- yeah. do you remember there were like news stories and headlines and you'd see a, a photograph of a, of a mother clutching her little baby looking outside a window. She's afraid to yeah. even go outside. I mean, that's criminal to me. You well, know? And, the, and yeah, the psychoneuroimmunological effect of being terrified is well documented. Yes. And you make people scared, then, uh, they, then they will, you know, you're, you're reducing their ability to combat infection. Good thing they learned their lesson, and when COVID hit, they didn't do that's any right. of that fear-mongering. <laughs> well, this was all a dry run. You know, that's my, 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 if the other thing that happened, and I mentioned this, I didn't talk about this on Tuesday, was that, you know, Governor Inslee declared an entire, uh, he, he declared the entire state under emergency order when there was uh, eight, 18 cases in Clark County, yeah. and then maintained that emergency status all the way through to the end of the legislative session. Uh, because once they got their bill, then all of a sudden the emergency was over. But, you know, there was no pushback whatsoever from anybody. Why are we declaring the entire state an emergency when there's only cases in one county? And uh, why is this persisting for such a long period of time? And why are we ignoring WAC 246100, which is the uh, the proper code that we already have for infection control? And uh, as I mentioned on Tuesday, the title of 246100 is Contagious and Other Diseases. Yeah. All right. So then uh, then there's another section. And so then the rest of this uh, section of this is that it just is describing, you know, when they when measles was discovered in the 12th, 11th or 12th century. 
Recovery from the infection is common, but ser severe complications can occur, particularly in those with impaired cellular immunity. So this is exactly what we're saying, mm -hmm. is that if you're a healthy person and you get it, you're going to be okay. If you're not, uh, then you're going to have some trouble. And then, uh, and the big one was uh, measles was not directly fatal. Most of these childhood infections were not ever directly failed. It was fatal. It was the uh, secondary infection. So you have a you have a pox, and then you scratch that pox, and now you've got some sort of an abscess, which gets into a septic condition. So, and this is just a reference here that uh, in 1928, a chance event in Alexander Fleming's London laboratory, the discovery of penicillin, new insights after more than 75 years of clinical use. And it, uh, you know, it finally got it, they started to use it in uh, 43 during the Second World War, and then it really got into clinical practice after the war. And then, uh, then, of course, here's the slide that I had uh, used last time I was here, just showing that in Washington State, uh, you know, in the 70s, school attendance rules were not a response to high mortality in the school-age population or any populations. Routine childhood illnesses stopped being fatal post-World War II after the introduction of penicillin and other antibiotics into clinical practice. Children with access to nutrition, sanitary living conditions, and a pediatrician tolerated the infections very successfully. Mortality was centered in the disadvantaged. I, I got to tell uh, you, um, Carl and everybody, it was awesome. There was a, a bill before the General Assembly out in Tennessee recently, and this awesome senator, uh, nicely, used to be my senator, but I got out of, redistricted out of him. Um, but they were talking about vaccines, and somebody asked him a question, and he's like, well, let me tell you. Yeah, he everything that you're saying here, he had his own his wonderful. Oh accent. my gosh! He's talking about yeah, mortar mortality really dropped when people started getting clean water and access to medical, you know, care and and good nutrition and all that. It was just it was so delightful to hear it uh, told. So, um, well, and that's the truth. The truth is that you the first big the first big drop was clean water, and uh, you know, uh, 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 sanitation systems and clean potable water. Then the next one was getting cars, actually, because now you don't have draft animals bringing everything in and out of the city. So you don't have uh, manure everywhere all of the time. And uh, I didn't realize this, but if you, if you had a draft animal and it died, then lots of the guys would just get their wagon and leave this poor animal you know, carcass in the streets. So there was all kinds of filth in the communities. And once, you know, so cars, they do their own thing, right? We've got the exhaust, but in some ways it might be a different, you know, it's a different type of pollution. But uh, no, that's exactly what, you know, people need to understand that the vaccines came in after the mortality rates were basically zero. And then this is that reference to uh, Roger M. Barkin, measles mortality, a retrospective look at the vaccine era. And again, this is, uh, you know, certainly the experience in other countries has underlined the risk to young children, the importance of poor nutritional and health status in contributing to rates of death associated with measles. Robson and Jones documented that in the United States, measles death primarily occur in individuals below established height and weight norms. The 10 state nutrition survey conducted in the United States in 6870 indicated evidence of malnutrition increased as income level decreased and was least common in white persons. Death to case ratios generally decreased with improved nutrition and health status. So wealth is health. Yeah. And then this is the, this is the map, the map uh, you know, with again these other references so people can chase down these slides and see these for themselves. And this is a, you know, this Barkin paper is one that every advocate should have a copy of. 
So has he, here's the, here's the next one. So at the global level, measles continues to be, this is back to the doctor's uh, opinion. At the global level, measles continues to be a leading cause of death among young children despite the availability of a safe and effective vaccine. There is no specific antiviral treatment against the measles virus, although several therapies have been utilized over the years. They don't mention the vitamin A treatment. That's part of the WHO mm-hmm. normal treatment. Yep. Worldwide is estimated the frequency of the cases is roughly 36 per 1 million, more than 130,000 deaths. Mortality in children is estimated to 1 in 2 for every 1,000. And that's what we were kind of discussing before we came on air. So this is either a uh, third world number or they're, they're, because there are so few cases, we've taken the denominator, denominator so low. Mm-hmm. That's how you can get these, these kinds of rates because in the Barkin paper just referenced, it was one in 10,000. So in the 50s pre-vaccine across the entire population, mortality was one, one in 10,000. In, in Washington state, we had 30,000 cases during the winter of 59 to 60 with two mortalities. And when you look at the county by county, counties with uh, poverty level counties, and particularly in uh, with minorities, there was a 6.7% higher mortality rate than in the others, which means in those counties, you were looking at a one, to f- one in 500, one to 1,000, compared to one in 60,000 to 80,000 in the, in the richer counties. And you know, so, all the trillions of dollars being spent on, on this- Literally appro- trillions. The trillions yeah. on, on this particular approach to preventing targeted infectious disease can you imagine the infrastructure that could have been created globally? Everybody on this planet could have had access to clean water. That amount of money, everybody on the planet would have had access to clean water. I mean, maybe we could have gotten everybody um, good sanitation, like you know, uh, you know, flushable toilet, or or right. at least a, a better uh, yeah, system. Something better than Some, open air defecation, right? Right. Something that would have improved their. Uh, resilience to not just the products that target, you know, the vaccine-targeted illnesses, but all illnesses. All, everybody would become resilient to everything just with that. And it just, it just so infuriates me. All this money was spent for vaccines that don't prevent infection, transmission, hospitalization, or death. And we're talking COVID, Um, you know, and then why are children in the world still starving and malnourished and dying of measles, you know? Why are right. we ensuring that, you know, the kids of the world have what kids in the U.S. have or used to have because they might have flushable yeah. toilets, but they don't have healthy food anymore. Um, you know, it's no. getting more and more expensive to to feed your kids a healthy diet. OK, I'm squirreling. Keep going. No, that's OK. <laughs> well, you know, no, that's exactly right. The opportunity cost of all of this. And and one one slide I didn't put in here was the American Journal of Public Health. And they were they were talking about the discussion in the late 50s about whether or not to even do the measles vaccine because measles had no was no longer dangerous in the western countries yeah and uh and 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 the conundrum of measles uh, of vaccination programs are is that the country needs to have an infrastructure capable of supporting consistent recurrent systematic vaccination and then the countries that need measles vaccination don't have that infrastructure. So you end up selling them, you're creating a vaccine that for a, a market that doesn't, isn't able to support it. Kind of like what we saw where, where you know, they weren't wanting to give, uh, sell the COVID at, the, at a discount to the African nations. You know, we have that same kind of a 
thing there, that kind of an angle. But right. so, yeah, I, I just want to. This is this is great. One one more thing here. When they came up with the HPV vaccine, which of course we disagree with, it's a dangerous shot. Blah blah blah. Yeah. Right? Because um, we need to reform the entire pharmaceutical uh, oversight industry thing. But it was developed for third world countries because in the United States. If you got regular pap smears, um, you, don't need you, it. you caught it early. Cervical ter- uh, cancer is very treatable, caught early, and there was no necessity for it. And some of the uh, researchers working on that product, they were sort of flabbergasted when they turned around and started marketing it to first world countries. Of course, that's where they're going to make all of their money. Um, so it, it never was meant for that because there really was no necessity, only for the places where they could not get pap smears. Was this product supposed to be used? But yeah, exactly. Well, a chicken po- chickenpox vaccine was only supposed to be used for a small subset of leukemia patients or something like that. And uh, if you go back to the New York Times article when they were discussing this, and there was people warning, you know, I'm concerned that if they approve this, they're going to try to roll this out on top of everybody. And lo and behold, they did. <laughs> you know what? In the, my Arizona talk, I show how the UK does not use the chickenpox vaccine and they state very clearly that their disease management of chickenpox is to let the natural infection run. I love right. that. Yeah. We got I just going to give you a heads up we got maybe uh, 6 more minutes or so or 7 minutes. Oh yeah, I think yeah. Okay. I think I'm pretty close. Okay, so this is the, this is the big the of the big clinker. Before widespread vaccination began in the 1980s, measles caused 2.6 million deaths a year with 12,000 of those in the Americas. The World Health Organization estimates that measles prevented 17.1 million deaths between 2014. Research suggests without a vaccine, epidemics of measles lasting three to four months would occur every two to five years in late winter and early spring, depending on the geographical location. So here's the problem with this is that 12,000 deaths in the Americas in the 80s, okay? So if there were 12,000 measles deaths in the Americas, in the 80s, then 11,995 of those occurred south of the Mexican border because there were no measles deaths in the United States or Canada. So that meant that these deaths were occurring in the Central Americas and the South Americas because in the developed countries of North America, U.S. and Canada, the rate was zero or close to it. You had incidental cases. So, Carl, so Carl this is Bob here just asking uh, the 12,000 of those in the Americas. That's the claim from the Spokane the spokesman? Yeah, if you look review. at that, so that's, that's his, that, those are his words, is that uh, before widespread vaccination began in the 1980s, measles caused 2.6 million deaths a year with 12,000 of those in the Americas. Can you believe that? Oh yeah, uh, and, I mean, and not I to can, get I can, yeah, and Boy. not to get too political, but uh, <laughs> the fact of the matter is now with uh, with all the uh, the increase in illegal immigration and the fact that there's no uh, border control or vaccination status checks for illegal immigrants, you're going to start seeing pockets of these outbreaks occurring in certain communities. I would, and yeah. I'm wondering, I am wondering if maybe. Uh, you know, some public health agencies might be directed by certain federal agencies to not look into certain outbreaks in certain communities to keep the narrative whole. That's, yeah, we know that's true because when we went back and looked at uh, uh, the cases, yeah, they they very selective about when they report cases and when they don't. And that's been something, you know, somebody asked me, 
I was doing it over my shoulder, kind of showing someone how I do my research, and they go, well, how do you do it? I said, well, the first thing is you just assume that they're lying. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's step one, is just that they're, you know, they're promoting a narrative, and then look at what it is. But this, you know, the idea that in the 80s that 12,000 measles deaths were occurring in the Americas and to lump us in with Central and South America, that is an intentionally deceitful uh, uh, miscommunication whose only purpose is to take all of the people that aren't old enough to know what the 80s were like to scare them and think that oh my gosh people were dying all the time from measles yeah. in the americas yeah. rewriting history know. for us thank right. you yeah. very much and and uh, bob that uh, i'm talking to bob looking at carl carl the noble <laughs> yeah. lie right you talk a lot about yep. th- that's an actual phrase the noble lie when public health yes. believes by lying to the public they're they're serving the greater good, but it's it's completely undermining everything now because we the more they they utter what they consider to be noble lies, the more we distrust them, um, and it's it's going to backfire. Exactly. Yeah. So then, uh, trends in infectious disease mortality and uh, infectious disease is only four point two percent of all uh, the loss that the uh, loss of life years. So 80, 81% is chronic disease. Of course, chronic disease is not getting 81% of the attention. This is from JAMA 1999, and it talks about how that we've had a shift now that uh, infectious disease is simply not a, uh, a huge, huge uh, uh, cause of mortality. And then here's, this is from that article there showing that in 1960, uh, diphtheria, pertussis, measles, polio, they'd all flatlined by 1960. Mortality rates for the infectious infections that make up the bulk of the school requirements dropped to zero long before we had universal systematic vaccination programs and before all states imposed school attendance vaccine requirements. In my other work, of course, I show that we didn't have uh, national uh, until um, 1980. Washington did not have school attendance rules until 1980. Yep. And then here is this is uh, from the CDC showing that in the 60s, we had on the DTAPs 60, 70, uh, polio 50, 60. Oh, and, and you're talking about percentage of uptake. The uptake was That's correct. those levels. Yep. It wasn't and what then, the high levels yes. they are now. So how did we achieve z- levels that are basically zero with that given uptake? Well, I can't read the numbers from here. Oh, well, they, so what this is, this is, this is 1962. Yeah, yeah. 19, yeah, 1962 to 1980. Or this one goes till 1990. That's an excerpt of one, but what what I this is part of my presentation where I just show that the, you know the 95 percent that everyone thinks we need to have we didn't get there until the mid 90s, and at that point uh, pharma had saturated the market, and that's when they started to shift away from the pediatric. They achieved saturation because of school rules, the 1986 National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act, which gave them liability, and then 19 in uh, 1994 vaccines for children let the government buy all the shots required for the children. Boom, all of a sudden now you're at 95% and then pharma looks around and goes, okay, this is great. Uh, This is a great business. Let's do that to the adults. And that was when we started to see this uh, assault on exemptions. Yeah. And if you take away responsibility for outcomes of your product... Yes. And you make it so that the people who are the consumers don't have to pay for the product... 
right? So right. they don't think twice. Well, I'm not paying for insurance. We'll cover it. I don't have to pay for it, right? You, you just wiped out incentive for people to actually do their medical due diligence on mm. both ends. The, the making of the product and the consuming of the product, the medical due diligence is gone. They call it hesitancy. I call it medical due diligence. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, and then this is just for, uh, this is from that same uh, article showing that, you know, typhoid and dysentery also dropped to zero because it wasn't vaccinations that did it. No. Okay, and then this is just talking about that, uh, you know, measles is uh, all around the world. And this is uh, using uh, the next section they call a cough chorasia, which is a fancy name for a runny nose congestion and loss of smell conjunctivitis, coplic spots. So you're trying to make it sound as scary as possible when uh, it's a normal type. And then uh, describing the diseases. And then the next big one is in Spokane County, the Washington State Department of Health's recent data shows that only 75% of children 19 to 35 months old received their first MMR and only 62% of children ages four to six completed the two-door series. And that's wrong because this is, date, this is using the least accurate data set. So this goes back to that NIS versus CD, uh, the uh, CIS data so that the most accurate, uh, there are several different vaccination uptake tracking systems used in Washington and nationally. The CDC National Immunization Survey is the gold standard for 24 months old. The most accurate tracking in Washington state is a school attendance required certificate of immunization status. It tracks every individual student down to the individual injection. This opinion is not using either of those systems. It's using the IIS, which is a voluntary hit or miss online reporting system that the DOH itself categorizes as unreliable. Now the NIS uh, for that same age group that he says only 75% shows 93.4%, and it's consistently 93, 94 point, there's 93.4% there, and then 93.9% there. So this is from the CDC, and then the Washington uh, Certificate of Immunization Status shows kindergartners at 88.9% MMR. They claimed it was 62%, that's 16% under count. Yeah, hey Carl, I hate to cut you off here. Can you hang out a few more minutes and come back? Yeah, I can do that. Okay, so uh, we ran a little long with uh, Bernadette asking way too many questions. So we're gonna take a break and we got some great more fact checking to happen um, in the next hour. You've been listening to an Informed Life Radio on 1150 AM KKNW. We'll be back in a few minutes. If you're looking for a publication that delivers honest takes and critical insights into the issues of our day, then look no further than The Flame Paper. The Flame Paper is written for the people, by the people, who aren't afraid to challenge a mainstream narrative, be it health care, voter fraud, political correctness, or even the one world government. The Flame is full of timely articles, reports, and expert advice written by freedom-loving, truth-telling experts, journalists, and concerned citizens. To subscribe, go to theflameusa.com. During this unprecedented response to an infection outbreak, it has been made very clear that shutting down lives and businesses is not sustainable or repeatable. We've also learned that it's unnecessary. Treatments exist and always exist. For 99% of the population, nutrients and oxidative therapies that support the immune system and improve symptoms are always available to address viral infections. For the less than 1% who need more, 
Inexpensive, unpatentable drugs can be added to the nutrient therapies to improve outcomes. It's time each and every one of us empower ourselves with this knowledge. We need not ever bring our lives to a halt again. We can both save lives and retain the liberty that nourishes us body and soul. Learn more at HealthyImmunityNow.org. That's HealthyImmunityNow.org. Informed Choice Washington is a nonprofit organization that advocates for healthy immunity, medical freedom, and fully informed medical consent. The right to make medical choices without coercion is fundamental to our civil liberties and a basic principle in all human rights declarations. To learn more, tune in each Friday from 3 to 5 p.m. to an Informed Life Radio and visit the website informedchoicewa.org. It's time to take a stand for medical freedom. Go to informedchoicewa.org today. We need a revolution. There's only one solution. I need somebody to show me, somebody to show me the love. We need a revolution. Hello and welcome back to an inform. Life radio, is it going? I'm getting a funny sound in my ears. Okay, I guess we're good. We're live in studio, and I'm not used to being in studio. I'm used to doing this at home, and it's so exciting to be in studio. So I'm going to start all over, Bob. Welcome to an Informed Life Radio on 1150 AM KKNW, our second hour, and also streaming live to CHDTV, and now Facebook and Twitter. Very exciting to be here. I'm going to tell you all about a wonderful survey that's going on. Um, if you value you know, free speech happening and this show happening and maybe some other shows that you listen to on KKNW. There's a listener survey happening right now. So please go to, uh, well, when the show's over, uh, www.1150kknw.com and click on the image of the 2023 listener survey near the top of the page. You know, let them know what you love about uh, the programming that you listen to. Um, you know, when you voice your opinion, you help shape the future of KKNW and shows like ours. So please let them know. And there's a little incentive there. You got a chance to maybe win a round trip passage for two on the Victoria Clipper, um, plus $100 in gift certificates to famous Dave's Restaurant. So, uh, Make sure you tune into that at 1150kknw.com and let them know what you think. So thank you so much. So we're going to be in our last hour. We ran out a little bit of time in Carl Kanthak. Um, let's bring on Carl. And we've got Javier Figueroa still with us. Um, Carl, though, you were just getting to kind of it, you know, for the average listener, I want them to really understand how important it is, this last point, because, you know, the data itself seems a little dry. But the implications of it are huge. And, and why the wrong data is being used is so important. So let's back up again and, and okay. go ahead and, um, and then explain it. So we make sure people okay, understand. So here's, yeah. That, no, you're exactly right. So here's what happened. So that it, part of this uh, opinion says, in Spokane County, the Washington State Department of Health's most recent data shows that only 75% of children aged 19 to 35 months received their first MMR dose, and only 62% of children aged 4 to 6 completed the two-dose series. So the average person hears that, okay, they can do in their head 75%, 100 minus 75 means 25%. So if someone was to ask them, 
what they guessed the exemption rate would be, they would say, well, it must be 25% if 25% of the kids aren't vaccinated. And then when you get to age four to six, and they're claiming that only 62% of those children have completed the two-dose series, now you can do that in your head. What's that? 38%. So notice that nowhere, and I'll tell you now, nowhere in this opinion do they say that the exemption rate is only 3% or 4% or whatever it is. I have that in, in an upcoming slide. And, the, and that's why they do that. What they're trying to do right now is they want to, uh, you know, they're trying to make this case that rates are low. They're not. And that the reason for these non-existent low rates are, are an excessive overuse or abuse of exemptions. And the reason they need to get rid of exemptions is because we have now voluntary compliance at 96, 97 percent of the quote unquote traditional vaccines. I heard that phrase uh, just on the radio today when I was driving in. They were talking about the difference between COVID acceptance and the traditional vaccines. So you've got, you've got basically within the margin of error of 100%. Now they wanna add vaccines that don't have that level of acceptance. The only way to do that in school requirements is to get rid of exemptions. The only way to get rid of exemptions is to mislead the public and most importantly the legislators that there is an excessive use of exemptions that is driving rates down to a dangerous level. And that's what the real, that's the real purpose of this. So. We have here a ridiculously low 75% of children aged 19 to 35 and 62% of children aged 4 to 6 on the two-day MMR series. Now, part of the problem with that is that, that age 7 is the deadline for that second dose. So you're measuring 4 to 6-year-olds for something that they're fully within medical guidelines up to their 7th birthday. So that's a separate scam all on its own. But... The, the big picture here is that what they're doing is they're using a, they're not using the correct measurement system. So there's three different systems primarily that are used in Washington state. Well, the one is the federal system, the CDC NIS. Now the NIS says that for 24 month old children, we're at 93.4%. We were in 19, 20, 21. And in 18, 19, we're at 93.9. That is way more than the 75% uh, claim that was just made in this opinion. And they're using a, a state system that is uh, simply inadequate. It's not designed to track it the same way the NIS is. Then when you get to this business with the age four to six, if you look at the, so they're claiming that only 62% of age four to six year old children have the two dose MMR. Now, the Washington Certificate of Immunization Status Data, Spokane Kindergarten, says that 88.9% of the students have two doses by 88.9, uh, so basically 89% of students have two MMRs by November 1 of the school year. And what, what age is that, kindergarten? That's kindergarten, right. So that's five years old and six years old. So that's a 17%, 16.9%undercount. And uh, this is completely unacceptable, and these people, if they don't know it, they should know it. And that's, this is from the Washington State School Immunization Status Data. It's their county-level school immunization data dashboard. And then when you get to the, uh, they have, they list, uh, so the exempt in kindergarten overall is only 5.6%. So that means 94.6% of students are not exempt. And the difference between the 88.9 who have two MMR by November 1 and that 94.6 uh, 
is that those are kids who are still waiting for that second injection. Then that when you look at, and the out of compliance for that age bracket is 8%. Those are students who are not exempt, but they're not complete, and they're in this sort of no man's land because Washington does not recognize properly vaccinated for age. A one dose four, five, and six-year-old is within medical guidelines up to the seventh year, up to their seventh birthday, and they try to ignore that. And then if you look at the whole K-12 system, they have 92.7% of MMR is at, uh, uh, by, the, by November 1 of the year, and again, they're trying to claim it was, that's a 30, the IIS is 30% below that. So it's completely unacceptable that they're using these rates. I don't know why they're doing it. They've been notified about it. I've sent uh, communications with them. Other people that I work with in Spokane are telling them all the time, stop using the IIS. I've been doing it here in Clark County. I testified uh, multiple times to try to get them to understand that. But this is just confusing enough that if someone doesn't follow it, they don't know. So then, uh, and then in the overall K-12 system for Spokane County, 4.8% exemption rate which still leaves you above 95% are, are not vaccinated and if they're not, are not exempt. And if they're not vaccinated, they're in the process of becoming vaccinated. So when we look at, uh, you know, this IIS, I just have some slides here that show that, uh, you know, that this is a voluntary system. It's not designed, it says, and then there are excerpts from their own report that says the coverage is low. And, uh, and then the conclusion of this uh, opinion says lower vaccination rates leave our community at greater risk of a measles outbreak. We have a opportunity to mitigate the risk. And, uh, but the, the point is there are no low rates. And every year, less than one and a half percent of 24 month old children have zero vaccines. And nationally, the school exemption rates only two and a half. And if you, off, if you do a weighting based on the state population versus the national population, we're exactly where we're supposed to be. So to summarize, and then I'll let you guys do the next thing, is that this opinion ignores vaccine failure. This opinion implies the cause of the Ohio under vaccination is careless ignorance when it's actually a deliberate choice by Somalis who don't want to have a, a poor outcome for their child. It overstates the risk of measles to a U.S. citizen with reasonable nutrition and access to health care. It overstates the impact of measles vaccination in a population where mortality risk was close to zero to a U.S. citizen, uh, tries to mislead the American historical impact of measles by saying that 12,000 in the Americas, by lumping us in with Central America and South America for mortality rates, uses global outcomes interchangeably with U.S. material. Uh, it's just, and what they're doing is that they've recognized there's a large and growing distrust of their advice, so they're trying to now do the fallback position is, Okay, we always were able to scare them with measles in the past. We're going to scare them again and then get, our, get ourselves back on track. And I just want to say, guys, before I, I want to say, Bernadette, how much we appreciate you and Bob, how much I appreciate you and Javier and you guys doing all this work that you do. And uh, I'm going to give a shout out to Victoria that did the thing on Tuesday because, you know, that she's a, 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 you know, the, the amount of dedication it takes to put a, a something like that together on a weekly basis and yeah. you guys to do your show weekly and Bob to do what he does 
every week. And if people were counting on me to do it, this would be a, a, an occasional, you don't know when. <laughs> well, you know, we, but anyway. we, we all have our part to play, right? We all have our passions yeah. and our interests and our abilities. And Carl, I mean, without our data guy, you are our data guy. Where would we be? I mean, I, I think I've told people in the past when you've been on that, you know, when we when I first met you, I, I didn't I didn't really understand the importance of the information because I kept saying, but but Bob, we need people comfortable with lower vaccination rates because, you know, we need to bring in all these other ways of doing public health and all of this. And you're like, burn it out. You don't get it. And then it finally clicked with me that the lies have a bigger impact. The lies are moving us in this whole other direction. Um, and then once it clicked with me, I'm like, holy cow, Carl, this is brilliant. We, you know, so I thank you. We thank you for your dedication and your doggedness. And when you get a hold of a fact, you don't let it go. And I love that you're going all around the country now and you're revealing this because when legislators have the fear brought to them and they have these false, this false information brought to them, then they can see it because they've been had it explained to them. And that's really what it takes. If we had a free truly free media in this nation. I mean, thank goodness we've got alternative radio like this. But I I pray for the day, I work toward the day when ABC, NBC, CBS, 60 Minutes, all the programming, when they get a quote from public health, they say, okay, I'm going to check on that before they publish it. (laughs) Um, That's how it used to be that, you know, a, a healthy republic thrives when journalists don't trust government that they need to be watchdogs and not trust every, they didn't used to trust everything out of their mouths and that's where we need to to get back to and so carl thank you well, so the, much well go ahead well i was going to say the press is the only occupation listed in the constitution it, it was that important to have a free and fair yes. press yes that, yeah, that, you know they don't say that we need to have f- farriers or you know, people that can chew horses or, I mean, the, the one thing that made it into the constitution was a free press. Yeah. Yeah. We need to get back to that. Absolutely. And that is what we are now. It's what we are becoming and, and uh, more and more people are joining us and waking up and and we're going to take it all back, sir. So I know you probably have some karate classes there to teach, so we'll we'll let you go. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you, Bob. Thank you, Javier. And I'll see you guys on the next time. Thank you, Carl. Awesome, awesome. So, you know, fact-checking. We are going to continue to be fact-checking. Javier, I apologize. I didn't know you were going to be available today. I'm so glad you jumped on. So you might not have gotten the email that explained where we're we're heading next. But um, you're going to be really interested in this because you're a researcher. So anybody new to us, you know, Javier works in, in research he understands research ethics, and we're going to be hitting hard here today, yeah, on research ethics. Um, Bob's going to be pulling up for us. We were sent a letter by a concerned mother who received a letter in the mail about her 14-year-old. It was to parent or guardian, but it was about her child, and it was Kaiser Permanente asking if they would be interested in enrolling their child in a study for Ginio's monkeypox vaccine. Uh, Very alarming. So um, Bob's going to pull it up here. I'm going to see if I can read it a little bit as it comes. So, and they're saying that the recent outbreak of mpox, formerly known as monkeypox, 
uh, was declared a public health emergency by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services in August of 2022. The Genios vaccine is the only Food and Drug Administrative FDA vaccine approved for prevention of MPOX and is FDA approved only for adults. While MPOX has been uncommon in adolescents in the U.S., this group could be at increased risk if the outbreak continues or in future outbreaks as it is spread by close skin or mucosal contact with an elect, uh, infected individual. I was going to say elected individual. Oops. Talk about a Freudian slip. Okay. Uh, an FDA-approved MPOX vaccine for adolescents is therefore an urgent public health need. Um, so we're, we're going to talk about this. Uh, oh, thank you so much for pulling it up. Um, for those of you who can see us visually, there is the letter that went out to the parent. So we began to explore this a little bit and found out a little bit more about this study. I'm going to um, I went to um, the website is www.iths.org. Uh, and it's about the MPOX vaccine trial. And it said very similar things. They're looking for um, safety and immune response in adolescents 12 to 17 uh, years. Um, kind of says the same thing there. They're looking for healthy adolescents age 12 to 17 years and adults age 18 to 50 who are able to attend all study visits at Kaiser Permanente Washington Health Research Institute Clinic in downtown Seattle. Can't be pregnant and if able to become pregnant, they are willing to use acceptable birth control. No medical conditions that affect the immune system and not taking medications that affect the immune system. No history of MPOX, cowpox, or vaccinia infection. No prior receipt of Genio's vaccine or any smallpox vaccine. And it says there are other conditions that might make somebody ineligible for the study. Um, there are two invest principal investigators. Uh, one is Lisa A. Jackson, MD, MPH, and John B. Dunn, MD, MPH. And I'm familiar with John B. Dunn because he is on the Washington State Department of Health Vaccine Advisory Committee. Um, he's been working with Department of Health for years and Informed Choice Washington has spoken with him, um, you know, over the past decade or so as we've been doing our work. Of course, when I saw this immediately, Bob, I am very alarmed. Um, I should say Barb and Javier. I'm sorry, there's Javier there too. I'm not used to having two of my co-hosts here. Um, because, and you know, if you could, I'm not able to pull up on mine, go um, to our um, Informed Choice Washington to our monkeypox page that we have there. Um, because when, when they started talking about monkeypox and about the um, vaccine I created on Informed Choice Washington, if you go to informedchoicewa.org and just search for monkeypox, you will find a facts about monkeypox um, page. So we're going to go through that just a little bit so that you kind of understand um, sort of why my initial response was so alarming that they were soliciting children for this because of what is known. Um, uh, let's see. Um, let's see. Naturally acquired immunity is generally superior, broader, and more durable than vaccination. Well, that's for all um infections for all vaccine products. The Genios vaccine does not prevent infection, transmission, or symptoms. 
or symptoms in animal studies. And this was basically licensed on animal studies with a few human studies for um, a little bit for uh, some short-term safety, as we'll see. Um, there are no human effectiveness studies available. Well, it, monkeypox is so rare, they really couldn't um, do any studies to show whether or not it actually worked. So they used the surrogate point of um, antibody production. Um, we have heard that there was a CDC study done in Africa um, but on humans, but the results have never been posted. The Genios vaccine is licensed for both smallpox and monkeypox. Um, its maker is permanently shielded from liability under the Countermeasures Injury Compensation Program. Because it's for smallpox, this, this vaccine product is shielded, and the, and the Countermeasures Injury Compensation Program is even worse than the uh, National Childhood Vaccine Injury Compensation Program. I mean, it's got a one-year statute of limitation, Um, you know, it doesn't pay for any attorney fees. It's very limited what it will cover. It's, you know, and very few people have been compensated. Um, and I don't believe they've yet compensated anybody for COVID-19. Um, tens of thousands of cases, I believe, are backing up. Um, um, the, in the trials that they have done with adults with these vaccines, 1.3 to 2.1% of the human subjects in these small safety trials experienced cardiac adverse events of special interest. Now, Javier, I'm going to turn to you. Um, As somebody who does uh, clinical trials, and you knew that a product already had been found to have 1.3 to 2.1% of its subjects experienced cardiac adverse events of special interest, would you, what What would your thoughts be about doing a clinical trial with this product? Um, Again, we're looking at, uh, on children, I would say that that would be uh, irresponsible, absolutely um, a dangerous thing to do. You have no preclinical safety data or even safety data on a pediatric population. You're playing Russian roulette here with, with children's lives, 1.3 to 2.1. That's unacceptably high, even for, you know, for standard medications. Yes, I, I would agree. And especially in children where they have almost no risk of, of getting this. And it's only very, very rare, rarely fatal. This is not, you know, and especially if you're healthy and what have you. Okay, so 1.3 to 2.1% of subject cardiac adverse events of special interest. Are you going to sign your 14-year-old up for this product? Are they telling them? I mean, are the are the parents understanding that they need to look this up if they're not being told? Um, and then it goes on to say, this is all taken from the clinical trials um, and right from the vaccine inserts. Uh, Genios is a live attenuated vaccine um, con- currently contraindicated for those with HIV, but in a clinical trial... Um, 8% of HIV-positive subjects that were given it had severe adverse reactions and were unable to get a second dose. 77% had worsening of HIV symptoms. That's really high. Um, I think that's all I want to read from there. There is this um, also a a trial drug that they're giving uh, 
T-pox for everybody, but we won't go into T-pox, but that's a whole other issue um, that is very concerning, what they do know about it. Um, they're even giving that thing to kids. Okay, so um, from there, Javier and Bob, what we're going to do then is we want to move on to the ethics of all this because what is a couple of things that we know is um, monkeypox is very rare. Bob, you pulled up some figures even with this outbreak, there are only like 400 cases that, and it peaked, and now it's flatlined. It's not circulating anymore. There were very few um, deaths, and those were highly likely in immune-compromised individuals. Um, so, but then we're going to go on and and consider the ethics of it. Um, and I, we have maybe I'll just have you go ahead and go right to. Oh, there you go. Well, I'll just bring up the CDC graphs here, okay. the cases, and seven-day moving average from May of last year of twenty-two, twenty-one. And if you could read the like the bar on the the left, what's the yeah, numbers? So it's reaching peak of four hundred cases. Yeah, four hundred to six hundred cases peaked, peaked, peaked at six hundred, but yeah, generally around four hundred in a given week. These seven-day moving averages, but you can see in this curve, if you uh, are looking at the screen, it's really gone back down to zero all of the last uh, I don't know six, eight months. So there is nothing that really uh, talks about emergency. I don't understand what the urgent need is in that letter and the need for this study. No, it, it does seem as if the word urgent and emergency are really being used and abused and thrown around quite a, quite a bit, right? And then how do you test when there's no real circulating disease? You don't. You don't. Um, you can't test the efficacy. Yeah. So where is the, do I have it pulled up? Um, Bob, if, if, why don't you go ahead and pull up that? We'll talk about the ethics and then... Um, we'll look again a little bit more at the clinical trials to show that most of it was based on animals. They could not test efficacy of the shot. We we know now um, that the shot does not, the MPOX vaccine does not prevent infection or transmission. Um, so it may personally reduce symptoms. Um, so to me, it's a failed product, right? It, if, if, a, if it doesn't prevent infection or transmission and it has a high rate of adverse reaction, this is a failed product. This product should not be licensed, right? Um, so what the heck is going on? If, if every, everything is being violated and nothing is making sense, okay, oh, you've got it? Yeah, go ahead and pull that up. Um, then there must be something else going on, and the only thing I can think of is are they expecting some sort of smallpox bio warfare attack or something why are they pursuing this this monkeypox vaccine is licensed for smallpox that's why it is um, the makers are immune uh, shielded from a liability for any any injury or death of that product um, permanently under the countermeasures uh, program so what the heck is going on because obviously this could not be about uh, monkeypox um, so the government, before they kind of became captured by the pharmaceutical industry, actually established some pretty good rules and protections. Um, and Javier, I know you're very familiar with these. It's like CFR 45, and what are the numbers coming down here? Uh, uh, 46 dot and all these different ones. And especially we've got information on special protections for children as research subjects. 
And I'm going to read just a little bit. And this is, we're right here at HHS, the Federal Health and Human Services uh, website. When a proposed research study involves children and is supported or conducted by HHS, the research institutionals, uh, institutions, Institutional Review Board, called an IRB, must take into consideration the special regulatory requirements that provide additional protection for the children who would be involved in the research. If the proposed research involves FDA-regulated products, then FDA's parallel regulations apply. Um, and so they set out four different categories of situations um, with products and clinical trials. Um, and the first one, 45 CFR 46.404, and this is when research is not involving greater than minimal risk in, to, to the children. Research not involving greater than minimal risk to the children. To approve this category of research, the IRB must make the following determinations. One, the research presents no greater than minimal risk to the children and Adequate provisions are made for soliciting the assent of the children. Remember, a minor child cannot give consent. Only the parent or legal guardian can give consent, but a child can assent to it, and then the parents and guardians um, have to consent to it. Um, so it is this clinical trial for monkeypox for children has absolutely failed because a 1.3 to 2.1% chance of um, cardiac adverse event is not a minimal risk. Would you agree, Javier? 100%. And again, risk to benefit as well. What are they trying to prevent? Right. And there is no urgency or need. No, they're they're doing fancy language to try to make it appear there's a need, but it's all fluff. Okay, then we move on to the second one, 45 CFR 46.405. Research involving greater than minimal risk, but presenting the prospect of direct benefit to the individual child subject involved in the research. So it fails here too, right, Bob? So I would say that um, 1.3 to 2.1%. Now, let's ask Javier here. And again, in your clinical trial experience, is that level of at cardiac adverse event to a product, is that, would that be considered minimal risk to trial no. subjects? Okay. No, it's 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 definitely greater than minimal risk. It's actually a significant risk. Okay, so it fails on that regard, and we know that the shots do not currently directly benefit any of the child subjects. They are not at risk of either catching this disease or of having a poor outcome to the disease. So it fails that portion of the code. So now we're going to move down to 45 CFR 46.406, research involving greater than minimal risk and no prospect of direct benefit to the individual child subjects involved in the research, but likely to yield generalizable knowledge about the subject's disorder or condition. The subject's disorder or condition. So... So the, the subject, if, am I understanding this right, Javier? So you've got the 14-year-old kid who's not going to maybe directly benefit from this product, but something about their condition may benefit from what is found from this trial. Is that, it's kind of a weird yeah. 
maybe I can jump in with that a little bit. To me, it means that it's not applicable because this is sounding more like this is sounding more like a treatment. This is actually well, it's, looking at a treatment for a condition the child has. Well, there's an absence. Exactly. Of usually cancer. Cancer is usually a good indication for that. And in some, in some cases like that, especially for orphan, orphan disease indications, this, is, this becomes applicable because, again, you're dealing with a small population, a high-risk disease condition, and an experimental therapy that, may or, that potentially has benefit, but you don't have enough information at a, at a population level. Again, for, for a vaccine that goes against the monkeypox, yeah. this is... It's it, this is insanity. Yeah, and it, the height of irresponsibility. One of the bullet points that it has to qualify is the intervention or procedure presents experiences to the child subjects that are reasonably commensurate with those inherent in their actual or expected medical, dental, psychological, social, or educational situations. So no, it does not in any way cover those. So it fails that. And so then we get down to the fourth category of acceptable ethical clinical trials in children, 45 CFR 46.407. Research that the IRB, IRB believes does not meet the conditions of 45 CFR 46.404 through 406, but finds that the research presents a reasonable opportunity to further the understanding, prevention, or alleviation of a serious problem affecting the health or welfare of children, does it meet those standards? What do you think? I say no. Yeah, well, it's a lot of words. It's a lot of words. <laughs> it is hard, probably hard to listen to on the radio as uh, you know, being able to piece it together. But having read it twice now, uh, it, it is really open-ended. Right? Right. Any serious problem affecting the health or welfare of children, that could be chewing gum. So, yeah. uh, But again, failing the previous three conditions that Bernadette read through and the reasonable opportunity now to help understand, prevent, or alleviate another serious problem. Again, serious problem. I don't think monkeypox, they even admit it in the letter that Kaiser has been circulating that it's an uncommon disease. Is that a serious problem? Of no. a recoverable disease? No. No. So, so this absolutely fails to qualify. I don't know how an IRB uh, approved the trial of monkeypox in children that has, you know, been filed at clinicaltrials.gov. Um, do you have that pulled up, Bob? I um, Let's see if I can find it here. I had it before. Where did it? go. I'm not sure I got, but we'll get it. But um, Javier, this is a clinical trial that is, they they say it's phase two. There's no um, placebo group. Um, There's no control group. They're just going to be comparing the outcome, um, antibody measurement outcome, um, Mm -hmm. and uh, adverse event outcomes to that which they saw in adults. Usually phase one and phase two are are dose escalation studies that are basically assessing preliminary safety and looking for markers of efficacy. Normally, you don't have placebo controls in a phase two, Mm. but it can happen. Usually at phase three, placebos are required if they are available. Okay. So again, this is just, this is basically looking to see what what can uh, the uh, children tolerate. Yeah. 
Yeah, here, I, I found the clinical trial. Well, and um, let's see, it's clinical trial number, oh, there it is, Bobble. I might try to email it to him. We could probably just talk about it. We probably don't necessarily have to see it. Um, But it, uh, they're going to be giving them the full adult strength is what it says. They're not measuring from what I can see. Maybe we do need Javier to look at this. Let's, um, let's, let's do a little fancy me sending it to Bob here in the middle of a, of a show. Let me see if I can email him uh, the link so he can just grab that and that. Because it's not a dose escalation, and they're not lowering the dose for the the age. I believe what I think it was age twelve. Did I say, um, Bob? There we go. Okay, it'll pop up in your email there. Thank you. Um, you're welcome. Let's go back, and I'm looking at it. I'm gonna go ahead and read it. Let's see where are they saying the. Where did it go? Brief summary: The study is a phase two randomized open label non-placebo-controlled, multi-site clinical trial that will evaluate two ID regimens. What's ID? Uh, is that immune dose? Maybe I would, had read it. Maybe there are two doses. Um, for, they're calling it MVA-BN, but that's the Genios vaccine, compared to the standard SC regimen in healthy vaccinia naive vaccinia naive adults. And that was the other thing in the the trials with adults they found that anybody who had had a uh, smallpox vaccine like what if you're in the military, you know, and you had a smallpox vaccine, they stopped giving it I believe 1978 because the risk benefit ratio had completely flipped and it was way more uh, risky to get the vaccine than well, not. It was also eradicated Literally in seventy seven. Right. Last last uh, confirmed case was in seventy seven. So sometimes they'll just give it to military if they suspect there might be some sort of um, biological exposure happening in a in a war zone or something. So, but the individuals who had been exposed to the smallpox vaccine had a a much higher rate of adverse reaction, including the cardiac adverse event reaction. Um, that doesn't bode well, Kate. Um, Javier, talk to us about what that means. If somebody has a previous exposure to something, an infection, and then they're either exposed again or they're exposed to a vaccine that trig- has an immune response um, similar to their natural response, and it makes their reaction worse, what what is that telling yeah. us about that product? Um, <clears throat> That that it's that it's too dangerous to actually use in a population level. Uh, and again, if you have a, d- a disease, and SARS is a great example, there was a rush to develop a vaccine for SARS. And when they developed the protein-based vaccine for SARS, and they exposed animals again to the wild-type virus, they they reinfected them. Those animals died at a rate of around eighty percent for mm-hmm. both mouse mouse and, and ferret models. Um, and again, it was a very strong immune response. Yeah. The immune system over-responded. It wasn't the virus that was killing the these animals. It was the immune response that was elicited from re-exposure to it. And that's another problem that you need to be aware of. I mean, if you have if you've been vaccinated against smallpox or uh, chickenpox, and you have something that uh, monkeypox is part of the uh, uh, the poxviridae family, there might be enough crossover antigen reactivity to where we're really induce a very strong reaction and the uh, antibody def, uh, dependent enhancement or um, 
other forms of uh, immune overstimulation uh, is is you know uh, probably a, a a reality mm-hmm. with monkey with this mpox vaccine. Yeah, it it is very concerning and I would say that any parent, you know, who really wants, you know, b- they want to enroll their kids and because they believe in science, I'm a little air quote science, um how it's being done today, that child is more likely than not fully vaccinated with the chickenpox vaccine as well as the covid shots which come with the risk of um cardiac issues with myocarditis pericarditis right so to me that's like even more concerning you're going to give an uh, mpox vaccine to a child who's potentially got already has these antibodies that, you know, this might enhance and make worse because it made people who got the smallpox vaccine, they had worse outcomes. It's it's just so highly concerning to me um, that they're even trying this. There's no necessity for it. Um, yeah. And so, yeah. Javier, can you explain to us, um, we probably don't need to look at that clinical, well, Bob's Bob's down. I'm going to let him keep going down the rabbit hole. He's reading that. Um, so, Javier, where where are we right now? Have you been keeping up to date? I haven't looked in a while. Been busy um, with a lot of other things, including bringing the Tennessee chapter of Children's Health Defense to Tennessee and bringing a Washington chapter of Children's Health Defense to Washington State. We're very excited. We're, we're getting groups of people in both states. So that's taking a lot of my time right now. And some of these. Some of these different things I used to just try to stay on top of, I've lost control of. So I would love to know if you have, Are you, what's the current status on the COVID shots in regards to uh, immune exhaustion, the um, antibody-dependent enhancement? What are we seeing? What is the science now telling us? So uh, Lancet published a couple of reports um, showing that if there is a any sort of um, um, immune um, support with the first uh, dose, uh, that quickly wanes. And the more doses you have, the more likely or more susceptible you are to become infected with some variant of Mm SARS-CoV-2. So the more doses you take, the more likely you are to become sick with with SARS-CoV-2. And all the data that's showing globally is that um, the more doses you take, the more likely you are to die from a SARS-CoV-2 infection, and also you're more likely to die from other causes as well. Yeah, the all-cause mortality correlation, is it, Do are we still calling it, is it correlation, is it association, where's the science on the connection there? I mean, we've got, we're, we've got people from all sorts of fields of science looking at this. We've got your actuaries, is that what they're called, like an insurance yeah. actuaries? They're looking at the tables and they're seeing... They're seeing things that are blowing their minds they've never seen. And they have to look at the data because they're going to go broke. Because the yes. people who are supposed to be healthy and paying into the insurance system are now making claims because they're injured yes. and they're dying um, in numbers never seen before, like at catastrophic levels that are unexpected. Um, what other fields of science are seeing um, that besides the actuaries? So one one major breakthrough that occurred was in uh, at the university, sorry, at the Institute for Pathology in Heidelberg, Germany. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Peter, uh, I'm trying to remember if it was Schumacher or Peter. 
well, the paper was from Schwab et al., but the the director of the institute in Heidelberg, um, I'm trying to remember his last name, and it's, it's escaping me for some reason. They published a series of reports that they looked at uh, people that were found dead at home, and they did full autopsies. And what they found was that um, uh, the people that, that died and were, had recently vaccinated showed clear signs of myocarditis. And the report basically said that we're probably undercounting, severely undercounting um, uh, vaccine-related deaths by at least 30 or 40% or more. Mm -hmm. And what they found was about 15% of the deaths from this group of uh, people that came in, 15 to 20%, I believe, um, they had clear signs of vaccine-induced injury in their hearts. Mm -hmm. Wow. So that in itself... And I mean, this was, a, unfortunately, was a small study, but the fact that they were able to sample randomly, they weren't looking for, you know, they, they weren't looking at vaccine status. They basically said, these people died recently. They were found dead in their homes. We'll look up their vaccination status after we do the pathology, and then we'll see if there's a correlation. The mechanism of action is understood. Spike protein will induce myocardial damage, will induce inflammatory responses, will start killing cells. Yeah. So we know that the MOA is present. A, the um, Bradford Hill criteria in epidemiology would help, which helped to establish the uh, the link between smoking and lung cancer. Uh, those have been met for the mRNA vaccines, one hundred percent. That's already that's that's well established. So we now have direct pathological evidence, and now we know that you know, for, in populations like the UK and the United States and Israel, the health ministries are having to lie and withhold data. You actually have uh, everyday people having to sue their health ministries or the health departments to get data that they have a right to, to see and, um, mm -hmm. and analyze, and they're being denied or they have to go to court to get it. So this right there, right here is prima facie evidence that um, these vaccines, or well, I shouldn't say vaccines, these gene editing therapies, these gene er editing therapeutics uh, are causing more harm than they're providing any benefit. Yeah. By at least a factor of 5x minimum, right. minimum. And, you know, we now have, you know, uh, Congress doing all sorts of um, hearings, committee hearings, pulling in, getting the testimony, gathering the data. And I, I just pray that all of that talk, it's lovely to hear the t have it actually be officially uh, being discussed, but it, it needs to lead to action. So, um you know, hopefully that will move forward. It's just, it's growing and growing and growing. And then the healing has to begin. It's just so much, but I don't exactly. see any signs in some States of them uh, letting up. It's, it's a runaway train that just, it's really hard to, to stop the momentum. Yeah. Well, yeah. what's interesting is that, sorry, go ahead, Bob. I was just going to uh, mention Javier taking off of your topic there, how in Washington state, the mortality data has not been published by the Department of Health for 2021 <laughs> and 22. It has been tallied in many other locations and they're uh, tallying up at the federal level, uh, presumptive levels of all-cause mortality. But uh, just, I've been reaching out to legislators as well. I just wonder, makes you wonder what they're doing with those numbers. It sure would be nice to validate what they're claiming in the Departments of Health meetings about how successful things are with the interventions and how the unvaccinated are dropping like flies. Let's prove it. 
And you've, That's you, dis- right. you discovered in the budget, though, that Department of Health is asking for $7 million to help rebuild trust in public health. Well, you know, we've got a free answer. Tell the truth. Tell you know, the truth. I mean, exactly. I, I really don't think that, you know, I mean, that's the only way forward is to just start telling the truth. That's the only way to rebuild trust. I, I don't know how they're going to get through this. I mean, it's so massive. Um, yeah. But that brings yeah. us to, Javier, I want to segue a, a little bit here because communication, talking, communities, people getting together is where it's at. And recently, well, Bob, you talk about the Truth in Listening session um, that happened and then the one that's upcoming a little bit. M- mention that because this is this is how we begin to heal communities and we begin to change communities. So you want to uh, let them know a little bit about that? Sure. Thanks. If you've been following Informed Choice Washington uh, website, any of the feeds we have on our social media, you've seen that we help sponsor Uh, Truth and Accountability Project in Wenatchee, the listening session where John Stockton was our keynote speaker. We had wonderful doctors uh, speaking remotely and then a number, almost 15 people with pandemic harms. And so that that video has been circulated. It's got some media play. Um, It got us censored on EIN (laughs) because it got what somebody shared it and ended up getting like 200,000 views. Hundreds of thousands of our press release and views. And apparently the owner of um, EIN Newswire service um, is is does not like what he's labeling misinformation, even though every word of it absolute truth. But anyway, it was I guess it was worth it to get to get banned be, to get the truth out because it's continuing to spread. So yeah, and it's been it. a wonderful thing in this state to really get th- these are actual people with actual harms that are willing to stand up, even at risk, even after they've been fired. It's still uncomfortable to get out there with your story. Yeah, but they are. So we really have to have uh, our hats off for that group, and it's inspiring other people across the state. This is more about our statewide advocacy as we are able to help. Uh, Spokane, a group in Spokane now wants to stand up and have another listening event. Uh, We are subscribing, looking for people who have had pandemic harms, uh, anything from job loss to uh, actual vaccine injuries. Uh, I mean, there are families are getting torn apart. Neighborhoods are still trying to heal. And with this kind of testimony, we're hoping that this will lead to the healing that Bernadette mentioned. And uh, we hope in line with the way Congress is uncovering and trying to chase down some of the facts of the matter that we have accountability mm-hmm. and it, we have to get these things on the record. So uh, we're looking for some support on that. Uh, uh, additionally, since the CHD hour, Children's Health Defense Hour, I thought I might mention uh, almost uh, coming on the heels of Carl's previous hour where he discusses the Spokesman Review newspaper article. Articles crop up against the public health narrative or for the public health narrative at different times. The timing is suspicious, but we have these articles cropping up and, and we need watchdogs across the state watching different news outlets. And that kind of previews the idea that we would be looking for uh, volunteer journalists. What do you call it, Bernadette? Yeah, I call it media monitors yeah. and citizen journalists, citizen, citizen reporters. Journalists. So, I, I tell you what, across this nation, this is what we're needing. So we're kind of recruiting in Tennessee and we're recruiting in Washington state. Uh, any, you know, if you're paying attention, if you're you're reading your local newspaper and you're seeing this article on measles and you're wondering, is it accurate? Send it to Informed Twist Washington. And then as we develop um, CHD 
uh, Washington chapter, uh, we're going to be building, and I say, I mean, Bob and I are taking off our one hat, putting on the other hat, but we, we need help. We need, we need leaders who want to help us do all this. We, we aim to grow both groups moving forward. So, yeah, we need to become the news, citizen journalists. And Media Monitors is, is going to be really huge because when they put out misinformation, we can't let that stand. We have to push back. Um, and we're getting low on time. Um, I just want to say real quick, uh, Javier, let's let's see if we can try between now and next week, have a conversation we can bring to the air. What are we going to do about this monkeypox trial that is high, that is completely unethical? We need to f- take formal steps to stop the trial. It's unethical. It, you know, the laws of this land should not al- do not allow it. And so, I would love to talk to you, and we can maybe bring a uh, have our listeners understand next time. Sure Bob, w- was there another announcement you wanted to make? Um, on the list, I interrupted you, and I'll make sure you got all your announcements out there. Mostly just a uh, shout out to the Spokane area, Eastern Washington, that we would be trying to have an event within two months. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'll be looking to uh, announce that more formally next week, hopefully. Yeah. With the date. Yeah. Got a lot going on. You know, it's taken us a while, but across this great nation, people are figuring it out. We're figuring out, first of all, what a great infrastructure our nation has. And that yes. we, we don't need, I, I, I say we need a revolution. We need a revolution to just actually peacefully figure out how to be real great American citizens. And it takes work, rolling up your sleeves, boots on the ground. We got this, right? We need to use this beautiful system we have. We need to reclaim it um, and not let the bad guys, you know, run away with the show. So exactly. I, I am really um, excited about, um, I think we're getting low. Uh, Close to the time here, so I, we're going to leave it on a positive note. I think it's. I think we're. I think he's going to play the music. Yeah, the music is coming. I'm, I apologize for my bumbling. It's really cool to be in the studio with my amazing engineer Nathan. Thank you. I love him. He's awesome. So um, Bob Javier, it's been so fantastic having you here today. You've been listening to an Inform Life Radio on 11:50 a.m. KKNW and CHD TV. We will be back next week. Come back. Hi, I'm Brad Dacus, President and Founder of the Pacific Justice Institute. For over 25 years, PGI's mission has been to defend religious freedom, parental rights, and the sanctity of human life. PGI has protected patients from being taken off life support and stood up for citizens around the country facing job loss for medical decisions that should be left between them and their doctor. For free legal representation and resources, visit PJI. Hi, I'm Lynn Redwood, president of the nonprofit Children's Health Defense. Our chairman, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., and our entire team are devoted to ending the epidemic of illnesses and disorders plaguing our children today. Through legal action, we're working to hold industries and government agencies accountable and to establish safeguards to prevent further harm. We're working overtime during this COVID-19 crisis to keep you informed about the politics and science of rush vaccine candidates. Freedom and our children's futures have never been more in jeopardy, but we can succeed. With your help, we can stop the devastation and give our children and grandchildren the healthy future they deserve. To learn more about what we're doing and how you can help, visit childrenshealthdefense.org and sign up for our free news. Please visit childrenshealthdefense.org today.
Are you suffering from a sinking feeling that the COVID-19 pandemic is being blown out of proportion and that nothing in the news is making any sense? If so, then there is a fact-based, science-driven news show designed just for you. My name is Del Bigtree, and I am the host of The High Wire, the world's most trusted news source in digital media when it comes to accurate, science-based reporting on the COVID-19 pandemic. From COVID-19 vaccine development to mask mandates, school shutdowns to job layoffs, The High Wire goes beyond providing you with the most accurate, evidence-based investigations. We send you links to the sources for all of our reporting so that you can further your own investigation and come to your own informed conclusions. High above the agenda-driven circus of mainstream media, we do not run. We do not hide from the truth. Instead, we walk the high wire. If you care about truth, then join us on Instagram, Twitter, Roku, and our website, thehighwire.com.